This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Blaine Fowers is a professor at the University of Miami's Department of Education and Psychological Studies and is the founder of the Network for Research on Morality. His research focuses on Aristotelian virtue ethics and character development, with an emphasis on application of the rich theory that sets Aristotelian ethics apart from other ethical traditions. He is the author and co-author of five books, including Frailty, Suffering, and Vice, Flourishing in the Face of Human Limitations. In this podcast, we discuss his scholarship as well as his purpose and plans for the network of research on morality. All right, everyone, I'm with Blaine Fowers today. Blaine is a friend and um, kind of an informal mentor of sorts to me. I have really admired and respected his work in Aristotelian virtue ethics. And um, before starting this recording, I was just talking to Blaine about sort of his background and learned that he was in Texas working with um, Frank Richardson, right? Yes. Okay, so is that where you did your doctoral program then? Yes, I did. Um, And I'll try to give you this story fairly quickly. Um, When I went to Texas, I had no idea what to expect. I'd always been philosophically inclined. um, And uh, I ended up in Frank Richardson's class the first uh, semester of my program, and he did a course on theories. And we studied some counseling theories, but mostly we studied, studied hermeneutic philosophy. Um, okay. So, uh, and, and I loved it. I really enjoyed the, the thinking and the questioning and all of that. And so I took several more classes with him and worked with him throughout my doctoral program. And then afterwards, we did a lot of collaborating on various papers. Um, and so it's where I got my real start in what I would call theoretical psychology. Um, and also uh, in terms of really looking at uh, moral questions in psychological research and uh, practice. So uh, what I learned from him was really about hermeneuticists like Hans Georg Gadamer and Charles Taylor uh, and some other people. Uh, And that's the work that we did initially. And then later on, uh, I became interested in virtue ethics um, and uh, realized that the hermeneuticists are all neo-Aristotelians. I didn't know that when I first read them. But after I'd read a little bit of Aristotle, went back to Gadamer, I could see Aristotle on every page. Same with Charles Taylor. Uh, so uh, it's a kind of a, a happy family of neo-Aristotelians. Not everybody agrees with everybody, but uh, there's a lot of common ground. It's really uh, very rich material. So for people who aren't feel familiar with hermeneuticism, can you just give a brief overview of what that is? Sure. Uh, Hermeneutics is a study of interpretation, is one way to put it. And uh, the way that hermeneuticists see all human activity is interpretation. So whenever we uh, act as a parent or as a teacher or as a student, we're interpreting that role. Uh, And those interpretations are always contextualized in our society and in history. And they always have a moral dimension. So we're always trying to do something we think is worthwhile. Um, and so hermeneutics is a study of that. It started out as a study of biblical texts, uh, and then it gradually expanded out to all human action. And then finally, the, the capstone of uh, philosophical hermeneutics was to look at not just the interpretations, but the being who interprets. So it becomes very ontological with God, Heidegger and Gadamer in particular. Okay. And so when you talk about hermeneuticists being neo-Aristotelians, what do you mean by that? Um, Well, I think they took a lot of inspiration from Aristotle um, in that, um, so for Aristotle, when you think about life and ethics, uh, from his perspective, it's always a matter of judgment, what you do. Uh, And so you're making a judgment about what's possible in the given circumstance, about what goods you'd like to see uh, come into being in your actions. Uh, and then you, you work to uh, do your best in that situation. 
Um, the, her the hermeneuticists also, they would call that interpretation, but they're also very big on the idea of practical wisdom or judgment. That there just isn't a rule book for life is what they would say. We're always interpreting and working out the best way of trying to proceed in the things that we think are important. Okay. And would you say that Aristotelian ethics is the mainstream way that morality is understood by psychologists and educators? Oh, no, quite the contrary. I think uh, Aristotelian ethics is very, very uh, much a minority voice, uh, especially in psychology. Uh, if you go to moral philosophy, it's more of it's become more mainstream in the last several decades. Uh, so you'll have people who are clear-cut Kantians, you'll have some utilitarians, you'll have some Humeans, uh, you'll have some uh, intuitionists of other stripes. Um, but within psychology, uh, morality is, is a very fraught topic. Um, so there's a lot of different ways people go, but uh, the Aristotelian voice is one that has grown a lot in the last 20 years. I mean, positive psychology has helped with that. Uh, and then there are a lot of people like me who are working outside of positive psychology, but very interested in uh, virtue. Um, so it's grown, but it's still a minority voice. And can you kind of situate it for me? How is Aristotelian ethics different from some of these other uh, traditions of thinking about morality? Um, so like, I've, I know in your work, you've critiqued positive psychology quite a bit for um, its theoretical backdrop or lack thereof, in, as the case may be. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of lay people are going to be more familiar with sort of these positive psychology approaches that are just popular and hitting the market um, for business advice and things like that. Uh, so okay. how would you situate it relative to other understandings? Well, yeah, it would be a little different to, to uh, com compare and contrast it to uh, various things. So if we were to pick moral philosophies, that'd be one way to go. And then with each of those, you'd need a particular comparison. Uh, with psychology as a whole or social science as a whole, that would be another way to uh, situate it. And then vis-a-vis -vis positive psychology would be a third way. So, Well, let's talk about positive psychology for a minute and then maybe mm -hmm. switch into um, okay. the disciplines of psychology. But let's, let's stick with positive psych. Okay. So positive psychologists are an interesting group, and I have a lot of overlapping interests and concerns with them. So... Um, and, and the positive psychologists frequently cite Aristotle, uh, so that he's probably one of their primary inspirations, not the only one, but one of the primary ones. Um, and so uh, on the surface, it, there should be a, a tremendous amount of overlap. But when it comes down to it, uh, there are some really key differences, because I, I think because I've done a, a lot of study of Aristotle and really tried to apply his thought in as faithful a way as I can, I think uh, positive psychologists uh, kind of went, took it and ran with it a lot quicker. Um, and so they didn't spend the time really working it through in quite the same way. So one example of a really important point to Aristotle was that the core of ethics and of life is the good life. So the way to think about uh, how a human being should live is to think about what would be a good life for a human being. Um, and positive psychologists are very interested in that. Uh, but they haven't worked it out very far, and they end up usually talking about things like happiness um, and um, effectiveness and things like that. So they tend to take a little bit of an instrumental and hedonistic, or hedonic, not hedonistic, hedonic approach to it. Um, there are positive psychologists who talk about eudaimonia. Um, mostly that comes out in terms of eudaimonic well-being. Uh, so it ends up being a very subjective perception and um, reporting on how eudaimonic one's life is. Um, and I've used eudaimonic well-being measures as well. So I'm not, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying they're extremely inadequate because they don't really capture what Aristotle meant, which is a complete life that's lived according to virtue. So it includes something like happiness. So to be eudaimonic means that you're pretty happy with your life, but um, the emotion of happiness is not really, doesn't, take you very far. Um, so I think a richer idea about the good is really important. And for Aristotle also, the good is both uh, pleasant and happiness-inducing, and it's also ethical at the same time. 
And those two things can't be separated. So it's a, a complete life lived according to virtue. Um, now, again, positive psychologists like to talk about virtue as well. So we have that in common. Um, where I, where I diverge a bit from positive psychology on the topic of virtue is, are, is a few things. One is that I'm very clear about the idea of moral virtues as opposed to virtues that could be just about any positive trait. Something like, well, say Angela Duckworth's grit. Um, I would not consider that a virtue, really. I would consider that, a lot of people think of that as a, what might be called a performance virtue as opposed to a character virtue. Hmm. Uh, the problem with grit is that it's really easy to think about um, gang members who are gritty or rapacious CEOs who are gritty. Um, they work hard, they, they're resilient, they don't give up, they um, face down obstacles, but they're doing things that aren't, aren't really very positive. Um, now, there are plenty of great CEOs um, and uh, so on. So a person could be a CEO and be very eudaimonic. That's a possibility. Um, but grit doesn't really get you there. Uh, what would get you there would be things more like um, uh, generosity, uh, fairness, um, gratitude, uh, modesty, things like that, that are typical character virtues. So that's another differentiation about what counts as a virtue. Um, and one other thing about the topic of virtue is that positive psychologists almost never talk about vice. Uh, vice is really important in virtue. So if you can't really conceptualize how character can go wrong, you're going to have a very impoverished and thin view of how character could go right. Um, so in order to understand the virtue of gratitude, we need to understand the vice of extravagance or the vice of stinginess. Um, in order to understand the uh, virtue of courage, we need to understand the vice of cowardice or the vice of rashness. Um, so, well, and that also goes for character as a whole. So there are some people who have, who live their lives in such a way that they're consistently pursuing bad ends. So mm -hmm. if you think of someone like a, um, let's say a human trafficker, um, they could be, uh, have all kinds of strengths in terms of grit or in terms of um, determination or um, uh, organizational skills uh, or uh, things like that. But what they're doing is a bad thing. They're, they're taking advantage of human beings, mm -hmm. uh, uh, exploiting them in really terrible ways. So they can't possibly be virtuous, even though they have a lot of strengths. Um, so it's important to understand vice because um, there are vicious people in the world. And if we don't understand it, then we're, we're, we're very vulnerable to those people. Um, Is this kind of some of the stuff that you discuss in the frailty book? I'm just personally curious. Um, I haven't read that book yet, but um, my understanding is that it talks about vice and suffering and I think something else too in the context of virtue. Yeah, the, the point of that book is really that, um, and this is, it's also a kind of an implicit critique of positive psychology as a whole, uh, because if you read positive psychology, whenever negative emotions or problems or difficulties come up, the most likely response is, well, you just need to get past that. You need to think about the positive. You need to do the exercises. You need to get out of that negativity. Um, and that might work a lot of times. But the truth is, is life is hard. Um, and all of us struggle. And all of us uh, need other people. And all of us have foibles and frailties and shortcomings. And so the point of the book is, how do we deal with that from a virtue perspective? What does it mean to have frailties as a human being? Uh, can we still be virtuous if we're frail, if we have shortcomings? Our answer in that book is yes, absolutely. In fact, our view of the virtues is that they are the strengths that allow us to deal well with those weaknesses and foibles. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, one example, of course, is um, the example of friendship. Uh, for Aristotle, friendship is a virtue. Um, and he talked about character friends as being people who uh, care about each other because of their character strengths and because of the good things about each other and really deeply want the best for each other and participate in uh, what I would call shared activities together. Um, so what does that virtue have to do with frailty? Well, what it has to do with is that all of us are dependent by nature. No human being can live a good life by themselves. We all have other people. We need friends. We need loved ones. We need people who care about us, who can pick us up when we fall, who can support our difficult endeavors, 
Um, and we just can't get by without that. So uh, in general, psychologists are very uncomfortable with the idea of dependency, but we wanted to bring that out very strongly and talk about how deeply dependent all of us are. And that now sounds like a weakness, if you just put it that way, but then the, the, the virtue that helps us with this dependency is friendship. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we um, depend on people uh, can be good or bad. So we could have like really needy dependency or really one-sided dependency or immature dependency. That would not be good. But we could also have excellent dependency. And that's what I think Aristotle meant by friendship is uh, an excellence in what often looks like a shortcoming. Um, so that's, that's a big part of the point of the book. And we go through uh, several different uh, shortcomings and foibles. We talk about suffering a good deal. Uh, no one gets through life without suffering. All of us suffer. So we have to be prepared to do with that well also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just try to avoid it or minimize it, but actually do the suffering well. Because when we really have a serious loss or disappointment, it's really important to pay attention to that and to deal with that loss or disappointment in a way that honors the person or the project that, that has uh, gone away for us, that, that we've lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and that, I think, is really important. And then we move on from there. And then the third topic of the book is vice. And so we have a whole chapter where we talk about evil and vice um, and that those are real things in the world that we have to recognize and deal with appropriately so that we don't get exploited and taken advantage of. And we don't, and we try to prevent people who are vicious from taking advantage of other people. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It sounds like that book probably got a lot of inspiration in your clinical practice as well and understanding like how humans overcome a lot of, issues that they have to deal with clinical but also just life i mean all of us have lost loved ones all of us have had periods where we felt alone where we felt defeated um and so this is just i think it's just part of the human experience that um that we're vulnerable in a lot of ways and and I think that those vulnerabilities are are very much a part of our humanity and need to be uh, seen as Part of how we can live well. So in other words, the idea is not to work around our frailties, but to go through them. Um, not to try to minimize our suffering, but to suffer, in, as I would say, excellently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the, the simple example of that is when you lose a loved one, when someone passes away that you really care about, um, how quickly do you want to get over that? Yeah. How much do you think is, is appropriate to think about them? Now, obviously, sometimes grief becomes overwhelming and problematic. But the other way to think about grief is this is the part of us that honors the loved one through the years and over time and remembers the good things about them and and grieves for that loss. Um, But that keeps that person alive in a very real way. Um, So I I think grief is a very good example of how to suffer excellently if, if you truly honor the person that you lost. Yeah. So how, um, you mentioned that, that goods often involve having sort of this shared friendship or a shared Mm -hmm. goal. Um, Mm -hmm. and in some of your past work, you've talked about sort of that four, that two by two matrix of, um, shared and constitutive goods as a framework for guiding, understanding, what is a good and what's not necessarily a good. So mm-hmm. when you were talking about um, Angela Duckworth's work with grit or perf- other performance um, virtues like determination, I was thinking, okay, I can see that those don't meet sort of the shared and constitutive requirements. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about this framework? Because I do think that it's sure. useful for delineating uh, your work from positive psychologists as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right about that. It is. Um, so the distinctions are between uh, instrumental activity and constitutive activity. That's distinction number one. Distinction number two is between individual activity and shared activity. Uh, and before I talk about any more th- of that, I'm not saying that uh, instrumental or individual activity is bad. They're good. They're necessary. They're part of everyone's life. Um, so I want to just put that out there right in front. Um, 
the difference between instrumental and constitutive activity is really a question of understanding means and ends. Um, so in instrumental activity, uh, we have we do what are called means ends uh, actions, and we we have something we want, we have an outcome or a product that we want to attain, um, and then we can pick from a variety of means to get there. And it doesn't matter too much which means we pick, as long as we pick one that's effective or efficient. So, uh, for example, uh, when it's time for me to drive to work or to go to work, there's a lot of ways I can go to work. I can drive, I could take an Uber, I could um, take the train, I could in principle walk or bike. Um, so. In a way, it doesn't matter that much how I get there as long as I get there. Um, so, and it doesn't matter whether I take uh, the most direct path or a more scenic path or a more relaxing uh, drive to get there. Those are just all decisions I can make, but getting there is what matters. On, with a constitutive activity, uh, you can't separate out the means and the end. So if we think about something like teamwork, if our goal is to have teamwork, there's really only one way to do that. And that's to work with the team. So it's the way to get there is the same as being there. Um, or another uh, example would be something like um, fairness in a relationship. Um, so the only way to have a fair relationship is for each person in the relationship to treat the other person fairly and for them to value that norm of fairness. So the way to get there is by doing the thing you want to have at the end. So they're not separable. Um, and... Um, um, one, one really good example of, that I often use is of canoeing. Some people canoe to get somewhere. Uh, so I remember once as a young man, or actually as an adolescent, we canoed to a place we wanted to camp. The only way to get there was by boat. So we canoed there. So the canoeing was just a means to an end to get to the campsite. Um, but most people, when they canoe, they canoe because they want to canoe. They're not going anywhere. They're maybe just canoeing around a lake or uh, something like that. And so the, the activity is the end. It's not separate from the end. So that's a little example of that. Uh, now, the individual and shared activities distinction, most of when we think about goal pursuit or doing getting something we want, we mostly think about things we do as individuals. So a person might get a degree or might get a job or might earn money. And those are all things we can do pretty much as individuals. And at the end of the day, the name on the diploma is just the individual who earned the diploma. And of course, a lot of people help them along the way, parents, teachers, friends, and so forth. But, um, but ultimately, it's their achievement. Um, and there's a lot of really great individual ends, um, things that are appropriate for the person to do themselves. There also are shared activities, though, and the difference there is that you can't do that by yourself. You have to have other, at least one other person and maybe multiple other people involved or the activity can't even happen. So if we take the, the activity of friendship, for example, we can't have a friendship by ourselves. We can't have um, um, emotional intimacy by ourselves. We can't have democracy by ourselves. We can't have fairness by ourselves. Uh, I mean, you can talk about being a friend to yourself or being fair to yourself, but that's a very derivative idea of what we mostly mean by those terms. Um, and so for Aristotle and for a Neo-Aristotelian, the highest form of goods are both shared and constitutive. Um, and it's interesting if you start to think about what are, what are those kind of activities, those are things like friendship, teamwork, democracy, justice, some of the most important things to us in the world. Now, the problem with psychology is we spend almost all of our time talking about individual and instrumental goals. Hmm. We almost never get beyond that. So in that four quadrant system with the two distinctions is a two by two table. I hope people can visualize that because I hope my description has been enough to visualize it. If not, there are articles you can read and it's Yeah. Have, we'll link to some. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be a good idea, link to a visual or, or to an article. But but in any case, uh, people live their lives in all four quadrants. We do uh, shared constitutive activities. We do shared instrumental activities. We do individual instrumental activities, and we do individual constitutive activities. So, just to give you a couple of examples, if um, well, uh, I I really like scotch, and so I think of myself as at least uh, something of a scotch connoisseur. Uh, well, that's a constitutive activity. It's an individual constitutive activity. I have to develop a taste for the 
uh, scotch, you have to be able to separate out the different flavors, <laughs> to appreciate the different um, distilleries, to, now I'm, I have to mention, I'm talking about single malt scotch. I'm not talking about blended scotches. Um, and, um, and, and so there's a whole, and there are practices associated with that and, and so on. But, but I can become a connoisseur on my own, but it's very much a constitutive activity. The only way I can do that is by drinking scotch. And it's a terrible problem. but I, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So I, as does that, is there room for a, vice to fit into that shared constitutive quadrant as well? Um, like, I'm wondering if this, yeah. if this framework weeds out um, things that aren't virtues or vices and are more neutral, or whether it weeds out everything but virtues. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easy to see how you could do in individual instrumental activities viciously, right? Right. Uh, so I, I do some I do I do some things uh, as an individual to gain wealth, and the things that I do are very exploitive and domineering, and so I take advantage of people to gain money. So that would be an individual uh, instrumental activity. Um, and so, like the example of uh, human traffickers, or uh, maybe. Uh, methamphetamine dealers uh, that's that's the way to understand what they do um, is that they they want money and they do things whatever it takes to get the money um, so maybe uh, I guess another way of framing this is it seems like morality has to do with social interaction um, does the shared component does the shared axis on this mean that all parties involved have that same goal or just some of the parties. So, um, for instance, like human trafficking, you might have two partners involved in the human trafficking, and for them, trafficking is the goal that they both have that they share. But clearly, the person being trafficked doesn't share that goal. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that maybe part of the aspect that weeds out vicious behaviors? Um, well, yeah. I mean, part of what I would say is that the trafficking is trafficking itself is not a constitutive activity that people don't right. do it because they value trafficking. They do it because they value the money they get from trafficking. Right. Although, so it stays I mean, is there, is there potentially somebody in the world that just has a fundamentally different moral compass though, that might get some sort of satisfaction out of trafficking? Oh, there could be. Yeah. So you could imagine someone who's, uh, vice it is to really enjoy exploitation and to really find a lot of really savor the domination that they have over another person. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would say is that's not just a different moral compass. That's a ruined moral compass. Right. Uh, I don't think that can be construed as just another value that's just as good as any other value. <laughs> um, now that, that might separate out me, me from a lot of people because some people will say, that, well, it's just different. It's not better and worse. Well, I disagree with that. I think there are better and worse ways to live. Yeah, and there comes your hermeneutic background, I think, um, as opposed well, to a lot of the relativism that's more common. Right. It's a kind of moral realism that suggests that um, morality isn't just up for grabs, that it isn't just a matter of preference or... Uh, say, historical or social context or something like that, but that there are really things that are good for human beings and things that are bad for human beings. Uh, exploitation is, is bad for people. It's mm -hmm. bad for the exploited and it's bad for the exploiters. Um, right. Because it just rules out all kinds of relationships and experiences that can't be had for either party. Um, and so um, people tend to thrive in certain kinds of uh, situations. And one of the conditions of thriving is a condition of justice. People agreeing that we're treating each other fairly. Right. Now, of course, there are lots and lots of different versions of justice. So it's not just as though there's one right way to do that. Um, but unless we're pretty much in agreement that we're treating each other fairly, we're not going to do well because we're going to, we're going to suffer and, if there's one party that's getting a lot more advantages or benefits or privileges than the other, um, and that's seen as an inequity, then you've got the one, even if you have all that extra privilege, you have to still defend it and you have to justify it. And that's, that's a burden you have to have. 
so um, the um, I think it was Epicurus who said um, that the only way to have peace of mind is to have justice. Mm-hmm. Because when things are unjust, you can't have peace of mind, even if you're getting the better deal. Uh, and so I think that's, I think that's worth taking seriously. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I am not as familiar with are other ethical traditions that are interested in, in virtue and how those are different from Aristotelian ethics in particular. I see a lot of work done with Aristotelian ethics, but not very much with other ethical traditions. Um, could you tell me a little bit about those other ethical traditions and how they might differ? I appreciate that you're also in the Aristotelian camp. So, um, Um, sure. The, um, the best contrast is probably with the Stoics. Um, and what's interesting is historically, uh, the Stoics had a much longer run than the Aristotelians did in the early days. So Aristotle and his school thrived for a time, but then the Stoics became the major moral philosophers of the ancient world for several centuries. Uh, so much so that uh, Marcus Aurelius, an emperor of Rome, is one of the major Stoics. Um, And uh, so Stoic philosophy is different in that um, they view, um, the the main difference is that they view virtue as enough for a good life. Um, Where Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and many other uh, ancient Greek philosophers uh, believed that there was a, a very important component of fortune involved. So it wasn't enough to be a good person because you had to have enough good fortune so that you had a reasonable amount of wealth, reasonable amount of freedom, your society was reasonably just, uh, and then you could flourish and, and, and live a virtuous life. Uh, well, the Stoics said, no, we don't think that's true. We just think that you just have to cultivate virtues yourself and your external circumstances doesn't, don't matter. Um, and so it's all about what you do yourself and what you can control. Um, so the famous image is that you could be uh, uh, virtuous and eudaimonic even as you're being tortured. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, and it's, that's a very admirable view and it puts everything in control of the person. Uh, I think the Aristotelian uh, viewpoint is really one that fits better in a more democratic society uh, mm. where people have a sense of being protected and valued as individuals. Um, and uh, to me, that that's how that's how that fits. I'm not sure that how many historians would agree with me, um, but that's a way of explaining why Stoicism was so popular for a long time. On the other hand, if you look today, as you said, Aristotelian views are far more popular than Stoic views you know, when people think about virtue, um, and it's the dominant uh, approach. There are Stoics. There are also Epicureans. Um, and uh, there are also humians who talk about virtue in terms of care and intuitions, not in terms of uh, the Aristotelian understanding of characters. So, um, so there are different ways to look at it, and I think they all have a certain amount of value. I, I find the most value in Aristotle because he has a really well-worked-out system uh, that I think informs uh, me as a psychologist and me as a person in a way that the other views don't. Okay. Thank you. So... Aristotelian ethics um, is a a very rich theory that Mm -hmm. sort of spells out that there are these certain real goods. How do you take that idea and bring it into the research world of um, which is overwhelmingly dualist and um, wants to be objective and sees these uh, listing off of goods as a potential bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's a big problem because um, how to uh, put morality and science into any kind of conversation is a difficult topic. Um, And I think the predominant approach in the social sciences is to just say you can't do it. So there's a realm of facts and there's a realm of values or morals or ethics, and they have to be two separate places, two separate things, um, and kept uh, strictly uh, apart. Uh, So that's the predominant view. And I call that view 
the fact-value dichotomy. I'm not the first person to call it that. But there are a lot of dichotomizers in the, um, in the social sciences. And those are people who think that in order to have an objective science, you can't be tainted by values or ethics or morality that that's a separate realm and that's something that everybody gets to work out and societies and politicians and philosophers and religious teachers that's where you go for that so that's what the dichotomizers say um on the other hand there are really are a lot of people who are studying uh clearly moral behavior um whether that's moral emotions or moral behavior or prosociality or um helping or uh, justice. There are a lot of people who are interested in these topics and have been studying them for a long time. Um, now they tend to be a little bit marginalized and they tend to have a, have a hard time figuring out how do I talk about these moral questions within a science context? And a lot of times what they'll do is treat the morality they're studying as, a, as an aspect of their participants and that they themselves are taking no stand. So there's kind of a they taunt there in a way that they're able to to maintain a bit of difference um and so um uh that's that's a common practice and then the third uh possibility i think is what i call evaluation bullet biters and i consider myself one of those so the idea there is that the understanding that these moral topics are of interest and they're very important uh, and that they can be studied scientifically. There's nothing unscientific about studying them um, in and of themselves. So we're, that's the opposite of the dichotomizers. Um, so these are topics that we can and should study, but that we can't help but study them from a point of view, and we can't study virtues without having some having skin in the game. We believe that it's a good thing to have virtues. Mm. Or if we're studying um, eudaimonia, we believe that it's good to have a good, full, rich life, um, and that that's not something we're neutral about. Um, so those are the three basic postures I think a person can take, um, and there's a lot of debate about that. And what's interesting is a recent paper that we submitted, we received feedback uh, both from uh, fact-value dichotomizers and from evaluation bullet biters. So the dichotomizer says, oh, you can't talk about that value stuff. This is terrible. This isn't science. And the bullet biter says, why are you even bothering talking about the fact-value dichotomy? Everyone knows that that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it gives you an idea of how fraught the topic is. And you can get yeah. two different reviewers on exactly the same manuscript saying exactly the opposite things. Um, Interesting. So yeah. what, what is your current area of research? What are some of the studies that you're currently working on or projects? Well, yeah, I mean, there are probably more projects than studies. Um, and the studies sometimes fit within the projects. Um, the, the big project we're working on and the one where we got this uh, opposing feedback was a paper called uh, The Emerging Science of Virtue. And it's where we try to make a case that there's enough scientific interest and value in studying virtues that it should become a scientific uh, approach. Um, and so one of the things we talk about is how do we deal with this fact-value dichotomy? Uh, another one we talk about is what, what would we mean by a virtue if that could be a scientific topic? So it has to be measurable. Um, we, we think of it as an acquired trait. Uh, we think of it as uh, being role responsive. That is, it matters what kind of role you're fulfilling how the virtue shows up. Uh, we think that it's related to the values that people have. It's related to a good life. And then we believe that it has, uh, uh, the, these traits have four components. Uh, they're behavioral, uh, they're cognitive. You have to know things in order to, to enact a virtue. Um, you have uh, concordant uh, emotions and motivations with virtues. And then it also has to be habitual or dispositional. It has to be something that's reliable. Mm. So, um, so that's that's one big project we're working on. Uh, it's been very interesting, and I hope we're persuasive because I think it's a great scientific topic. And there are we found about a hundred studies of virtues. Um, now a lot of them are methodologically very weak, and so we have a lot of methods recommendations as well. Um, so that's one project. Uh, another project I was involved in the self motivation and virtue. Uh, project with uh, Nancy Snow and Darsha Narvaez, and we conducted a series of studies on fairness and kindness. So mm -hmm. we did an experimental study 
we did an experiencing sampling study, and we did a narrative interview study uh, in order to try to, to get a better idea of what might these virtues look like in, in everyday life. And we were able to uh, zero in on some really interesting things. And so once again, it's clear that these uh, the concepts like virtues can be measured and can show up empirically in ways that are interesting and worthwhile. Uh, and I think everybody who has a friend or a, a marriage partner or who works in an organization cares about fairness. Yeah. This matters to us in every single setting. Um, yeah. So that's what we want, why we wanted to study because we thought it was important. Same thing with kindness. It's something that, that really concerns us as human beings. And, and we just do better if our relationships are kind and fair. So and we, yeah, you had mentioned finding some really interesting things. What kind of stood out? Well, I'll tell you about the experiment we did. We did a, um, uh, an economic game. It's called a public goods game. And we created three conditions. And one condition was uh, basically uh, kind of fairness encouraging. And one condition was fairness, unfairness encouraging. And the middle one was kind of in the middle. Um, and, you know, I won't go into all the details of that. But um, And then we also assessed people on their self-reported trait of fairness. So we developed a trait fairness scale. Um, and our interest was, so there's a lot of research that looks at how situations affect behavior. And they undoubtedly do. This research is very clear about that. Um, but most psychologists now believe that it's, that our behavior is a matter of both situations and traits or person variables. And so we wanted to look at both. And even though psychologists generally believe this, there isn't a lot of trait situation research. So we assess the trait, we put people in these three situations, and what we thought would be the most prominent result would be an interaction between trait and situation. And the interaction we expected is that people high in trait fairness would not be influenced by this unfairness manipulation. And people low in trait fairness would be influenced by this uh, manipulation. And that's exactly what we found. Very cool. Um, yeah. So uh, that's what you would expect. So if someone doesn't make fairness a priority in their lives, then they're going to go more with the situation than someone who does make it a priority in their lives because they're going to be more likely to pay attention to what they think is fair, regardless of what the situation is. So and were those, yeah, were those trait measures self-report as well? So the trait measure was self-report and then the fairness behavior was observed. Right. That's really cool. Um, that's one of the, when I try to explain my own research to people who aren't psychologists, the questions are always, well, how do you measure, how do you measure this? And often it's self-report. And then the next question is, you know, well, how do you control for people lying? Basically asking about self, about, um, social desirability. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, as I've dived into it more, it seems like social desirability is less a problem than, you'd expect <laughs> much less yes there are i could point you to at least a dozen studies that suggest that that yeah. there's at least as in the way we measure social desirability but um there's all kinds of reasons to think that that it doesn't bias people's reports of their virtues very much so uh, in the experience sampling study we did um we looked at the distribution of people's self-reports of how how much they acted in a fair or unfair way in the last two hours, how much they acted in a kind or unkind way in the last two hours. So we sampled them four times a day for two weeks. Um, and we found pretty normal distributions of these variables. So both within persons and between persons, uh, we didn't find the strong skew you would expect if there were a lot of social desirability. If people were trying to impress us with their kindness or their fairness, they would have reported high scores on both consistently and so had a very strong negative skew in the data that didn't happen yeah and then when people also give self-report self-report social desirability scales you see somewhere around 15 to 20 percent common variance between any virtue and any social desirability measure 20 percent is high mm -hmm. it's more like about 10 percent overlapping so you really can't say it's a matter of social desirability now do some people um, maybe distort a little bit to look better, maybe. Do some people distort a little bit to think better of themselves? Yeah, probably. But it's not an overwhelming thing. It's it's just part oh. of the error in the, in the yeah. measure. Yeah, 
And even so, those social desirability measures are not useful for separating that because they're assuming that that just the questions themselves are confounded with virtue to such a degree that Mm -hmm. um, it it ceases to be useful. I had sort of these like grand ideas for taking social desirability measures and then creating sub skills that were unconfounded with virtues. And Mm -hmm. I spent a long time looking at this data and it just, I, I just ultimately became frustrated and came to the conclusion that these desirability measures were not, they just were essentially kind of measuring virtue more or less. And so you couldn't like, you couldn't get rid of those, those aspects and expect to have anything meaningful left over and what remained of the social desirability scales. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting stuff. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. At least, mm-hmm. at least I should say for low stakes. I think for higher stakes, like if a, if this was an evaluation that somebody was taking for um, potentially being hired, you probably see desirability creep in um, more. But yeah, for these general purpose self reports, it seems like desirability is less of an issue than we had imagined. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good reasons to think that the the virtue measures are actually getting a pretty good um, a pretty good take on people's virtues. I mean, there always is going to be error, and there always is going to be um, problems. And and one of the one of the big problems, of course, is that most of the virtue measurement is single time point global measurement. It's one of the things we point out in our virtue science paper. Yeah. Is we need more uh, measures that actually can allow us to tell whether this is a trait or not. Because if I just ask you how things, how you do things in general for your whole life in one single time point, then you've got to do a lot of summarizing and a lot of kind of uh, characterizing of things. On the other hand, if I ask you, what did you do in the last two hours? It frees you up to to really focus on behavior that doesn't require so much summing and so much uh, mental arithmetic. And it also, it turns out, people are a little bit more willing to be, uh, to present themselves in less uh, favorable ways if you're only asking about a period of time. So, so if you ask me, were you kind to the people you interacted with in the last two hours, I can say, no, I really wasn't. I was pretty grumpy. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to think of myself as an unkind person. It's just in the, those two hours, perhaps yeah. I was and And that's relatively easy to do. So the advantage of the this kind of repeated... The measures, as I'm sure you know, I know you know, and probably many of the listeners know, is that you can assess for traits because you can look at within-person consistency over time. Mm-hmm. And you need two kinds of information to have any confidence in a trait. One is that between within-person consistency, and the other one is between person differences. Right. Um, you don't have both. You don't. You're not really talking about a trait. Yeah. Yeah. So that's we need more of that. There have been a few studies like that, um, and they're very. Um, affirming of the concept of virtue as a trait. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Blaine, I want to shift gears a little bit over to the Network for Research on Morality. So you, when did you start cooking up this group? Uh, I've been thinking about it for about a year and a half. Um, okay. And so it started out real gradually. I was thinking about it mainly as a local uh, enterprise that, um, and maybe I'd include some people from uh, maybe around the country, some people I knew that were doing uh, morality research. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this needed to be an international and interdisciplinary group. I mean, it was going to be interdisciplinary right from the beginning. Um, so, um, so there are a few reasons that I thought about this. One is that, as I said, there are already a lot of people studying moral questions and studying them either scientifically or very rigorously as philosophers do, for example. Mm. Um, and as legal scholars do. Uh, so one way to do that rigorous research is empirical, which is what psychologists are most familiar with. But uh, philosophers are also, they think of their work as research, and they're obviously clearly very rigorous in their work. So, um, so I wanted to include uh, people from a, a variety of disciplines. But when you look at people who are studying morality outside of moral philosophy, most of us are pretty marginalized and pretty... Um, uh, siloed. So you get a, a number of developmental psychologists, for example, who study uh, moral development, 
Um, and within that, there's a group of people who do that, but almost they, they don't interact with very many people outside of their group. Uh, if you look at social psychologists or personality psychologists who are studying moral questions, they're even less, they have even less uh, group resources to draw on. Um, and if you look at counseling or clinical psychologists, even less. So, um, so people are kind of out there working on their own, and it seemed to me that a network uh, could provide people with uh, support and guidance and information um, and an identification that would help them to do their work better and uh, more consistently. Um, so that was one thing, just the, the siloed and kind of scattered nature of this uh, enterprise. Um, a second thing is that um, this question I mentioned before about how do you address questions of morality uh, from a scientific point of view? And that's one of the things that people can use a lot of assistance with and there's a lot of confusion and debate about. So hopefully this forum will provide a, uh, a good place for us to really think that through as well as possible. Again, the, the answers might end up being multifocal, but if we can have the, the discussions together, at least we can have good answers in whichever direction we tend to go. Mm. Uh, so, um, and then finally, there's a question that a lot of us ask, and I'm, I'm probably more on the extreme on this than most people, and that's the question of whether science itself is a moral enterprise. Um, so, uh, for some people, you can study morality as long as it's just about the people you're studying, and that keeps you at arm's length from it. You don't have to take a position. But to me, all of science is a moral enterprise. It's something that we care about. We're not neutral about it. It requires a tremendous amount of self-development to be able to do. It requires virtues like patience and honesty and modesty, where you can't do it well. Um, and ultimately, we do science for a particular good. And that's a bit of knowledge. And that's something that humans care about. We're, we're knowledge-interested creatures. It's always been a part of, our, uh, of who we are as a species. Um, and our development as a species has been really contingent on the increasing knowledge that we have and capability we have. Um, and so this is not something that we as a species are neutral about either. Mm. Uh, so I, I see uh, uh, science very much as a moral endeavor because we're we're pursuing a good that's central to what it means to be human. And you're extreme in that regard? I think so. I don't think many people would uh, agree with me wholeheartedly. Really? I yeah. thought maybe I'm extreme as well, but that surprises me because <laughs> there's a lot of people upset about research ethics right now. Well, research ethics, uh, th see, that's a little different take on it. Uh, and, 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 Pretty much everybody cares about research being done ethically. I'm talking about research as ethics. Well, I you know, not, not informed consent and not uh, being, you know, not not p hacking and um, uh, you know, not um, faking your data, things like that. Everybody cares about that. Um, but I'm talking more about the scientists themselves developing virtues and doing what they do because they love knowledge. Um, and So you mean, you mean science as a moral enterprise, not just in, in what they put into science, but also how science affects them? Well, how they are a scientist, what kind of scientist one is. So you can do good science or bad science, right? I but mean, doesn't a lot of that boil down to... Ethics, or like, what would be an example of doing bad science but keeping to like certain ethical principles still, like the p hacking, for instance? Well, for a long time, the people who did p hacking didn't think that it was a problem. They right. didn't think it was an ethical violation, and that that's changed. And so there are certain people who've been uh, caught out in this and now get uh, pretty roundly criticized. I mean, some of the criticism is very intense but that they were trained to, to work that way. So they didn't even think it was a problem. Um, and pretty much everybody in certain subdisciplines did that. Um, so it just seemed like the way to proceed. Um, and, and then folks came along and said, wait a minute, this is a serious problem. It's really distorting our results and we can't replicate. And, and so there's good reasons for seeing it as a problem. Um, mm -hmm. But if that was your practice for 20 or 30 years and then you get called out on, it, it's kind of a rough situation. You know, it's... right. I, I'm, I'm all for eliminating p-hacking, but it's been pretty rough a lot of times. 
Um, but you could do uh, just sloppy science, just not really uh, keep good records or, um, um, I don't know, uh, yeah. do things that seem like okay practices, don't seem unethical, but nevertheless change the way your results turn out. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. uh, another way to think about it, and this is an Aristotelian way to think about it. So, you can think about following ethical guidelines as a set of rules and constraints that you must follow, and this is what people expect of you. So, if you're going to get grants, if you're going to get IRB approval, if you're going to get published, these are the things you have to do. You have to follow the rules to get these, these outcomes. Well, that's a very instrumental way to pursue ethics, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, you could say, well, uh, I think it's really important to give people informed consent before you have them participate in a study. I think it's really important to prevent harm. Mm. I think that getting, uh, uh, looking at the data to try to really understand what the best take on this bit of reality I'm interested in, what is the best take? That's what I want to have, whether that agrees with my viewpoint or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I really want to try to get as close to the truth as I can or to get as much reality as I can. And that's a personal commitment. That's who the person of the scientist is, as opposed to being a rule follower. Um, mm. Now, again, I would rather have people follow the rules than not follow the rules. But if when I train uh, researchers, I train them to love knowledge. Yeah. And I train them to think about what is it that they're really doing and how do they want to contribute to the world, mm -hmm. not how do they get published and how do they get grants? Um, so how does your thinking about science as a moral enterprise influence uh, the Network for Research on Morality? Well, there's a diversity of opinions about that within the network. So, and we haven't really explored it very far. The only thing we've done officially so far is we held a symposium at the University of Miami in April. And I'm very happy that the talks at that symposium are going to be available on Vimeo uh, in the next couple of weeks. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, so, so that's exciting. So people can have a look at that. And my talk was entitled Science is a Moral Enterprise. So I try to make some of this case about that. But there were other things like uh, Barry Schwartz talks about practical wisdom as a, a, an essential part of social science and uh, morality research. Um, and uh, another talk by Joe Mikulski was on um, uh, the community of scientists. And here's a good example. So what he looked, a good example of what you're talking about with uh, people doing ethical research, but nevertheless is ideological and therefore may be a bit distorted. Um, so uh, he talks a lot about uh, a sociologist named Black who created uh, what he called pure sociology. And the, the, the idea was to try to get all of psychology out of sociology and only look at super personal uh, mm. factors in people's behavior. Um, and it's really interesting. I mean, I think as an idea, it's a pretty great idea. But what Joe did is he looked at the people who were disciples of Black, the people who were similar, you know, had some overlap with Black but weren't his disciples, and the people who were non-Blackians. And he found a very clear correlation with how often Blackian hypotheses were confirmed. Wow. The yeah. in-group was much more likely to have confirmatory findings than the out-group, and then the, the uh, somewhat Blackians were in the middle. Yeah, uh, confirmation bias. Nothing, yeah, there's nothing unethical going on there, but it, it pretty, pretty strongly looks like there's some distortion happening. Yeah. The results are not necessarily reflecting the realities. They're reflecting what people believe about the realities. So what are some of the next steps for the network? Well, we're going to be um, doing some more organizing and deciding. We, like, for example, we just, as you know, we just went through a big decision-making process about what to even call ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, because initially, I called it moral science. Mm -hmm. And then some people said, you know, that might not be as inclusive as we want to be because not everybody sees themselves as a scientist who wants who you want to be involved. So I would like to see psychologists, philosophers, sociologists, educational, educationists. Uh, we have some people in law, some people in medicine. Um, there'll probably be some people from religious studies, uh, anthropology. Some of those disciplines are considered scientific. Some are more humanities, and they, they do serious research, but they're not really called science. Hmm. So we change it to the network for research in morality. Um, 
and so that we could do that. And then we specifically changed it to the research on morality, so people wouldn't think we're just want, we're just aiming for ethical research. Right. <laughs> of course, we all want ethical research, but we're looking for more than that. We're looking for morality to be a specific content area of science, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to study human morality as a content area. So what are some of the most heavily represented disciplines in the network right now? And, um, and how large is the network at this point? Um, at this point, there are 140 people who have signed up. Um, and this is, uh, it's been remarkable. People are extremely enthusiastic when I contact them. Not everybody says yes, but most people are really grateful that there's going to be an organization that they can be a part of. Um, and excited about the idea of having this group. Um, and so I contacted, I would say maybe 40 or 50 people that I knew personally who uh, could be part of this. And most of them were excited to be a part of it. And then they, many of them suggested one or two or three people and I contacted those. And so that's the extent of the outreach so far is people I know and people they know. Um, and so the biggest groups are psychologists, philosophers, um, I have, we have a, a, a large group of sociologists. So one of the things that happened is I got connected with a couple of sociologists who connected me with a lot more of them. So we have a pretty good group of sociologists. We have a fair number of people in business. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they're virtually, almost everyone is a professor or a student, uh, or a postdoc. So these are people who are deeply interested in, in research. They're not, um, there are very few practitioners, although some of the researchers are very practical researchers. Um, so it's mostly a research organization at this point, and that's probably the way it's going to stay, I would think. There might be applied people interested. I hope we'll do work on applied questions. Um, oh, and I want to go back to your question about what's next. We're planning oh, a, yeah. an international conference in uh, early 2021. Cool. Right. We haven't uh, flexed it out too far yet, but that's the, we've got some time to do that. And that's what we want to give ourselves time to plan a good conference. And where is it going to be located? Most likely Miami. We're thinking February or March and uh, it's a really nice place to come. (laughs) Yeah. Especially at that time of year. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That that alone will be a draw as well as the content. Yeah. Very cool. And are there specific goals for that conference or is it going to be like a, um, like, is it more organizing for the group or is it a research conference itself presenting and symposiums? It'll be a research conference. I mean, one of the things that I want to do is to bring people from various uh, research centers here to talk about their work and to bring those people together. So that would be people at the Jubilee Center in England, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nancy Snow and her group at Oklahoma, the Institute for Human Flourishing, um, people from Wake Forest University, um, uh, uh, people at Berkeley who are working at the Greater Good Center. So there are a lot of these kind of centers, people at the University of Chicago uh, who are studying practical wisdom. Um, there are a lot of people who I think are doing great work, and there, these are some concentrations of people, uh, whereas a lot of us are kind of individuals in uh, mm-hmm. departments or disciplines. Uh, so it would be nice to see uh, some of this organized work. Um, also, the other thing that's really good about some of these places, particularly – uh, uh, Chicago, Wake Forest, Oklahoma, and the Jubilee Center, they're very interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece that I really want to highlight and have people see how that works, how that can work. It's not easy, but it's really, really valuable. Very cool. So uh, are there any calls to action or requests that you would have of people who are interested in who are either involved in the Network for Research on Morality or um, are interested in joining that you would like to see happen? Um, Not exactly calls to action. I think um, a lot of it is just providing a a framework for people to have um, um, support and encouragement and guidance and collaboration opportunities. one of the things we talked about uh, in the meeting in, in Miami was uh, a, one practical application would be um, moral education at the uh, in higher education. So mm-hmm. both for undergraduates and in professional education. So one of the things that I'll be doing in the next week or t- next 
in the coming weeks, I should say, is to uh, ask people about curricula that they have or ideas that they have for how to do that well in a university setting. Um, there's quite a bit of character education happening in uh, K through 12. Um, and we might become involved in that at some point, but I think a, a real opportunity right now is post-secondary education because there's only scattered efforts in that uh, at this point. Yeah. Um, another thing we'll want to do is have people um, develop panels or uh, panel discussions at various conferences to talk about moral science or uh, research in morality um, with uh, various groups around the world and in different disciplines to, um, you know, to let it be known that, that we're doing this work. And so for any listeners that are not a part of the network, but would like to be, what's the best way that they can join it? Uh, the best way is just to send me an email. This is still a very um, informal group. Our main effort right now is a listserv. Um, so what I would do is add people to the listserv. Um, and then as we develop more initiatives and more uh, activities, then there'll be uh, more things to do. But for right now, listserv participation is, is most of what we're doing. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Blaine. I really appreciate all of your, uh, all of your insights and the good conversation with you today. Well, it's like a lot of our conversations. We talk about a lot of things and it's always fun. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewbie by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. Music